everybody. Welcome to the 74th episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast, along with all of our other news episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication for multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal minds.journal to see more please consider supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash analyze educate ko-fi ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or substack analyze educate.substack.com all those links can be found in the show notes below and with that being said we'll head into the news All right, just a quick note, you guys have helped us reach over 33,000 downloads, and we are close to 1,900 followers on Spotify, so thank you everyone for your support, really appreciate it. Starting off here with the Indo-Pacific, looking at Vietnam, this is coming from my man Duin and Sinotalk. On January 9th, an Su-22M4 fighter bomber of the Vietnam People's Air Force crashed near the Da Nang International Airport. The jet was on a training flight and belonged to the 929th Regiment of the 372nd Division. It was being flown by Captain Du Tien Duc, commander of the 1st Squadron, who began experiencing a malfunction 10 minutes into his flight. He was able to steer his aircraft away from populated areas before ejecting. He is said to be in good condition. One civilian was injured from falling debris. This is the second Su-22 crash in Vietnam in the past year. Moving on to Central Asia and the Middle East, looking at Iran on Thursday, the Iranian Navy seized an oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman. The Navy says that it seized this vessel, which they claim to be an American tanker because of a court order directing such. The vessel is the St. Nicholas, an oil tanker that originally belonged to Iran and was originally named the Suez Rajan. It was seized by U.S. authorities and sold off to Empire Navigation quite some time ago after it was found to be violating U.S. sanctions against Iran. At the time it was seized by Iran, St. Nicholas was carrying oil from the Iraqi Basra oil terminal and was heading to the port of Aliaga, Turkey. The ship was staffed by 18 Philippine and one Greek national, and we really don't know what the word is on the crew members right now. Moving on to the Israel-Hamas war, looking at reported casualties for Gaza, we have 23,708 killed, 60,005 injured. For Israel, we have 1,398 killed, 8,787 injured. For the Gaza operation specifically, we have 187 killed in action and 937 wounded in action. Looking at the West Bank, we have 343 killed, 3,949 injured in Lebanon. We have 191 killed in Syria. We have 85 killed in Egypt. We have nine injured, and that gives us a grand total of 25,725 people killed, 72,750 injured. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the number of journalists and media workers that have been killed in this war is 79 vast majority of those were Palestinians that have been killed in Gaza, that number is 72. Additionally, four Israelis and three Lebanese journalists have been killed as well. Now, major combat operations in the north have pretty much come to an end. The IDF still maintains a presence in the entire area, but in recent weeks, some Israeli troops in the north have been sent back to Israel. In central Gaza, the IDF has still been pushing into the barrage refugee camp and advances are being made along the Salah al-Din road in that area. 
And then in the south, clearance operations are still ongoing in Khan Yunus, that is the second largest city in Gaza. Now, it was recently revealed that the mother and American uncle of a U.S. Army soldier were evacuated out of Gaza in a secret operation between the U.S., Egypt, and Israel. That is Sarah Zakak and her brother-in-law, Fried Sukaik, who are related to U.S. Army infantryman specialist Ragi A. Sakak. An unnamed U.S. official told the AP that the Israeli military was involved in the operation, which saw the two family members be evacuated on New Year's Eve. The official claimed that no U.S. forces were on the ground for the operation. The U.S. State Department says that around 300 U.S. citizens and permanent residents still remain in the Gaza Strip. On the 7th, one Israeli police officer was killed and three other were wounded when their vehicle hit a roadside bomb during a raid in the West Bank city of Jenin. After that incident, an airstrike targeting Palestinians throwing explosives at Israeli security forces killed six people in the city. The Border Patrol officer that was killed has been identified as Sergeant Shay Jermai, 19 years old. Border clashes between Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah have continued throughout the week. Not a whole lot to note on that front. Also, over 100 hostages are still being held in Gaza, but really not a lot of news to report on that front either. Since October 17th, there have been at least 118 drone and rocket attacks against U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. The Pentagon has confirmed 69 casualties so far. That includes 25 TBIs and at least one critical casualty. The U.S. military has launched eight strikes in response. That eighth response came on January 4th when U.S. airstrikes in Baghdad killed Abu Taqwa al-Saidi and Ali Naif Aref. Al-Saidi was the deputy operations commander of Harakat Hezbollah al-Nujaba, otherwise known as the 12th Brigade of the Popular Mobilization Forces. That was the second U.S. airstrike against the 12th Brigade since October 7th, and there has been one U.S. response for every 14.8 attacks in Iraq and Syria, roughly. Now, moving on, the Yemen-based Houthi rebels have continued their activity in the region. Now, there have been at least 28 attacks against commercial shipping and allied naval assets in the area since October 19th. The Indian Defense Ministry has confirmed that their Navy has begun providing escorts to Indian vessels in the area of the Red Sea to protect against Houthi attacks. Additionally, India stepped up flights of maritime patrol craft and drones in the region. On January 10th, the Houthis launched its largest attack against Allied naval vessels, yet the ships involved were the USS Eisenhower, along with combat aircraft, USS Mason, USS Laboon, and the HMS Diamond. The ships took no damage or casualties during the complex attack. They shot down 18 suicide drones, two cruise missiles, and one ballistic missile. For the first time, the Houthis claimed this attack against U.S. and British forces, after the attack, the Biden administration issued its seventh final warning to the Houthis. Yes, seven. But it looks like seven was the magic number. On January 12th, UK and US assets struck multiple Houthi targets inside Yemen for the first time during this conflict. The attack saw 22 US Navy combat aircraft, Tomahawk cruise missiles fired from US Navy vessels, and four British Typhoon fighter jets accompanied by a Voyager refueling plane. These strikes were aided by Canada, Australia, the Netherlands, and Bahrain. We're not really sure what exactly these countries provided in the terms of aid. Maybe something will come out later and we'll update you guys. Confirmed targets include the Abbas Airport, the Taiz Airport, the garrison of the 22nd Brigade, the Kalan Base, the Hudaya Airport, the Zubdad area of Hudaya and multiple positions in the capital city, Sana'a. 
60 targets in 16 locations were hit. This includes command and control nodes, munitions depots, launch systems, launch sites, production facilities, particularly drone production facilities, and air defense radar systems. The Houthis acknowledged seven of their soldiers killed and another five wounded. After the attack, President Joe Biden released a statement saying that he authorized attacks against a number of Houthi targets used to endanger the freedom of navigation in the Red Sea. He ended the statement by saying, quote, these targeted strikes are a clear message that the United States and our partners will not tolerate attacks on our personnel or allow hostile actors to imperil freedom of navigation in one of the world's most critical commercial routes. I will not hesitate to direct further measures to protect our people and the free flow of international commerce as necessary, end quote. The second strike was carried out about an hour after the initial strikes with 12 more locations hit Houthi targets. The Houthis responded to these strikes by launching an anti-ship ballistic missile at a commercial vessel in the Red Sea. That missile hit within 500 yards of the ship, which is very close, but still not a hit. And also the Houthis Supreme Political Council also declared all American and British interests as, quote, legitimate targets. And on the 13th, more strikes were launched against the Houthis. Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Kearney fired multiple Tomahawk land attack missiles at a radar site just outside the capital, Sana'a, in order to, quote, degrade the Houthis' ability to attack maritime vessels, including commercial vessels, end quote. All right, and lastly, we got an update on naval forces' posture in the region. Thank you again to Intel Skits on Twitter for his infographics. The Israeli Navy has three corvettes near the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt has two warships off of its coast in the Red Sea. The Dwight D. Eisenhower carrier strike group is in the Bab el-Mendeb Strait. Obviously, they took part in those strikes against the Houthis, a lot of combat aircraft coming from that aircraft carrier. There are 13 ships in the Gulf of Aden under the framework of the Combined Maritime Forces. That is this alliance of maritime forces to protect the region against piracy and things such as that. China also has three ships in the Gulf of Aden. Iran has three ships in the Red Sea and two in the North Arabian Sea. India has four ships operating in the North Arabian Sea. The British Royal Navy has four ships near Bahrain. And the U.S. Navy and U.S. Coast Guard have 18 ships in the Persian Gulf in the Gulf of Oman. We will take a quick break and we will be right back with Africa. All right, we're back with Africa, taking a look at Somalia on the 10th. A UN helicopter accidentally landed in the Al-Shabaab-controlled territory in the Gogadud region. You may know Al-Shabaab is the Al-Qaeda affiliate, mostly based in Somalia, currently at war with the government. They have been at war with the government for quite some time. That helicopter was captured along with its eight UN workers on board. They were transporting medical supplies and wounded Somali soldiers. It's believed that two Somali nationals were on board and the rest were foreigners. I believe most of them were Ukrainian, actually. Moving on to Ethiopia, a recent port deal between Ethiopia and a breakaway region in the Horn of Africa is causing major tensions with Somalia. This is coming from HM Intelligence. Ethiopia, under Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, has been looking to secure port access to the Red Sea for quite some time. Now, I spoke to the Egypt analysis on Twitter, and he tells me that 
This has even led to some concern of another war breaking out in the region, as Ahmed has signaled that he would be willing to go to war with neighboring Eritrea in order to gain access to the Red Sea. However, in recent weeks, Ethiopia was able to strike a deal with Somaliland, gaining access to one of that region's Red Sea ports. Somaliland is a breakaway region of Somalia, which claims it is independent and has been able to act as such since 1991. Somaliland is not recognized as independent by any UN member states, but it does have diplomatic offices in a handful of countries. This includes the US, Taiwan, Russia, and France, among others. In exchange for port access, Ethiopia is supposed to take steps towards recognizing the region as independent from Somalia and will also grant Somaliland shares of Ethiopian Airlines, the national carrier. Ethiopia is also set to lease land from Somaliland to build a naval base. In 1991, the Eritrean victory in the Eritrean War of Independence left Ethiopia landlocked. Its navy was disbanded in 1996, but it was revived in 2019. It currently has naval assets in Djibouti. As you can imagine, Somalia is not too happy about this arrangement. The Somali government has recalled its ambassador from Ethiopia and President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed signed a law nullifying the port deal, making it illegal in Somalia's eyes. As HM Intelligence points out, any international recognition of the breakaway region will leave the Somali government even weaker than it already is. So we'll be paying attention to that situation. Moving on to America's Bulletin from the Borderlands is releasing on the 15th. So that's our first issue of the new year. Keep your eye out for that. Actually, that should be out by the time that most of you guys listen to this. I assume most of you will listen to this episode on Monday and it should be coming out on Monday. Looking at Ecuador, Ecuador is essentially at war. Now, we have spoken about the situation in the country before briefly. Within 24 hours, the situation in that country as it pertains to criminal groups exploded. A gang leader was able to escape from prison on the 8th, prompting President Daniel Noboa to declare a state of emergency. Ecuador used to be one of the safer countries in South America, but, but things began to turn around in 2018 when criminal groups began to take advantage of Ecuador's position bordering Colombia and Peru, the two largest producers of cocaine in the world. Criminal organizations have been able to grow in size, with some becoming cartels. In recent years, they've also been able to build relationships with some Mexican and Colombian cartels as well. Battles between organizations for drug routes and control over prisons have become commonplace, and along with battles against government entities, they've completely changed the face of the country. We highlighted these issues during the recent presidential campaign when candidate Fernanda Villavicencio was assassinated in August. It is believed that a criminal organization ordered that killing, but it isn't yet clear which one. Thirteen suspects were arrested in connection to that assassination, with at least six of them being described as, quote, Colombian hitmen. Seven of those 13 were later killed in prison. Now, as you could probably tell, Daniel Noboa won that election last year with fighting organized crime being the major focus of his campaign, as it is the major issue for most Ecuadorians right now. Some regional analysts theorize that this conflict may be partially motivated by Noboa's attempt to root out government officials tied to gangs and cartels. That operation known as Metastasis saw more than 20 high-level security officials and judges be arrested in December for engaging in activity that benefited a criminal organization. Conflict is also tied to Jose Adolfo Macias Villamar, aka Vito. He is the leader of Los Choneros, one of the more prominent drug cartels in the country that has aligned itself with the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. 
Vito escaped prison on January 8th, where he has been since 2011, with the exception of two months in 2013 after his first escape from prison. This is what led to the 60-day state of emergency being declared by President Naboa. Criminal organizations reacted by lashing out across the country. The violence escalated the next day. Gunmen stormed a TV channel in the city of Guayaquil and took hostages. Special forces later raided that building and arrested 13 criminals who they say will all be charged with terrorism. Videos on social media also show police officers being captured, prison guards being executed by gang members and bodies laying in the streets of the capital city. Multiple car bombs were exploded across the country and civilians were attacked as well. During the chaos, another major gang leader was able to escape prison as well. That is Fabricio Colón Pico, leader of Los Lobos, once a splinter group of Los Chineros that now rivals its predecessor. President Neboe declared a internal armed conflict and mobilized the military to deal with, quote, terrorist groups. That declaration identifies 22 criminal groups and designates them terrorist organizations. Attacks against the country are still ongoing. At least 15 people have been identified as dead or critically wounded by open sources. Banks, markets, and stores were closed throughout the country, especially in Quito, the capital, and Guayaquil. Looting was reported in some areas of those larger cities throughout the week as well. Additionally, the Minister of Education announced the closure of schools and the shift to remote learning until at least January 12th. I'm not really sure the current status of that. Public transportation in Quito was reduced and security is being increased at the Mariscal Sucre International Airport. Inmates in five prisons around the country were able to seize control of at least a portion of their prisons and are believed to still be holding 178 guards and administrative staff hostage. Head of the Joint Command of Ecuador's Armed Forces, Admiral Jaime Vela Arraso vowed to not back down or negotiate with criminal groups. He added that every group identified in President Naboa's decree is officially a military target. Now, some foreign reactions here. Multiple countries have expressed support for the Ecuadorian government and the people in the face of this violence. This includes Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Paraguay, and the U.S. U.S. Ambassador Brian Nichols stated that the U.S. was ready to provide assistance to Ecuador and will remain in contact with President Naboa regarding that support, although it isn't clear what kind of support is being offered. But recently, uh, National Security Spokesperson John Kirby did clarify that U.S. troops are currently not being discussed. China also closed its embassy and consulates in the country out of fear for violence, but the most notable reaction has come from Ecuador's neighbor, Peru, who declared a state of emergency along its entire northern border and has ordered the deployment of special police and military units to the area in case the violence spills over across the border. Now, moving on to the U.S. got a presidential race update. These are averages from 538. Biden's approval rating is at 39. That is up one point. His disapproval is at 56. That is also up one point from last week. Trump's favorability is at 43, and his unfavorability is at 52. His unfavorability remains the same from last week. His favorability is up 1%, and both of those statistics are actually the highest as far as favorability goes, and the lowest as far as unfavorability goes has been since at least February of 2021, so that is interesting to note. Looking at the Democratic primary, Biden is at 70 percent. He's down one point. Marion Williamson is at sixth, and Congressman Dean Phillips is at three. Both of those remain the same from last week. 
looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 60%. He is down two points. DeSantis is at 12. He remains the same. And Nikki Haley is at 12 as well. She's now tied with DeSantis, and she is up one point from last week. Over the week, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie dropped out of the race, saying that he realized there was no path for him to win the nomination. At the time, he was polling about 3%. This comes just before the Iowa caucus, and the Iowa caucus will be held for the Republican Party on the 15th, so we will have an update for you guys with the winner of that primary next week. Moving on, U.S. Navy Petty Officer Wing Chang Zhao, otherwise known as Thomas Zhao, has pleaded guilty to espionage on behalf of the Chinese government. While at a naval base in Okinawa, 26-year-old Zhao provided his Chinese handlers with blueprints from radar placements and detailed plans for a large-scale multinational military exercise. He was arrested over the summer. Zhao was paid $15,000 for the information he provided to China. He has now been sentenced to a whopping 27 months in prison, and he will pay a fine of $5,000. So even though he's been convicted, he walks away with a little over two years in prison for spying for China while actively serving in the military. So that's all I have to say on that. On the 8th, Commandant of the Marine Corps General Eric Smith underwent successful heart surgery, open heart surgery, to repair a biscopic aortic valve. This was the cause of his heart attack on October 29th. General Smith is in good condition and he will return to full duty following his recovery. Until then, Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps General Christopher J. Mahoney will continue to perform the duties of Commandant until Smith returns. Now, moving on, but kind of along the same lines, we now know the nature of the procedure that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had in late December. The procedure was done in order to treat prostate cancer. On January 1st, he was admitted to Walter Reed due to pain in multiple areas. It was determined that he had a urinary tract infection and abdominal fluid collections that impair the functions of his small kidneys. For at least three days, the White House, National Security Council, Congress, other cabinet members, and the American people had no idea that the defense secretary was not fulfilling his duties. Additionally, none of these parties had any idea that Austin had prostate cancer. Again, if you didn't hear that, the White House, President Joe Biden, had no idea that his defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, had cancer and was undergoing surgery to resolve that issue. Also, while Deputy Secretary Kathleen Hicks filled in for Austin while on vacation in Puerto Rico, she had no idea that Austin had cancer either. Despite this ordeal, President Biden says that he still has full trust and confidence in Austin. So far, one House Democrat is calling on Austin to resign. That is Representative Chris DeLuzio of Pennsylvania. He's a freshman congressman and a Navy veteran of, I believe, six years. Now, the Department of Defense... Inspector General is currently investigating to see whether or not Austin violated any laws in regards to not notifying the president of his incapacitation or cancer. But right now, that is all I have for you guys. So I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, all the support you guys give us means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze, educate, that is all one word. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot. And also, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash analyze, educate, ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash analyze, educate, or 
analyzeeducate.substack.com. All those links can be found in the show notes below. That is all I have for you guys right now. We'll see you soon.